Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's good to be here with you again and continue in our series in Mark. So if you want to open a Bible or your device, we're in chapter 5 this week, and we're going to read the first uh, 20 verses of Mark chapter 5. Let me start. It's quite a long passage. It's actually the longest, I think, of the longest account of the book of Mark. He's normally quite short and to the point, and he gets through quite a bit of interesting stuff today. So Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure or an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him and he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And a large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And those tending the pigs, they ran off. And they reported this in town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him, but said, Go, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. <clears throat> now, we have a passage today that might stretch our minds, our modern scientific minds, on a few things. We have demons, possessions, evil manifestations, talking demons. We have possessed pigs. We have thousands of pigs acting irrationally, running into a lake and drowning. And that might be difficult for our modern day sort of scientific mind to get our heads around and ask Rightly, like what is going on here when we read a passage like this in the Bible? And I think a rightful thing is when we read something like this is we have a sense or we could conclude that there is something else going on than what we actually see. There's more to what meets the eye, right? There definitely has to be something more than what meets the eye. And as I was reflecting on that, it's a bit like these family meetings that we've been having for the last year in our country with our president every now and again. You know, we get called to a family meeting, and 
we sort of feel that that's not all that there is going on. Like there must be something else happening, some other agenda or other interests at play, because often what we see and hear doesn't really make sense. And I think many people, when they have those family meetings, are left wondering, what is going on here actually? And then when you don't really have a sense that you know what's going on, it leads to some sense, often people over the last year have been very anxious. It might lead to some cynicism or lawlessness, all sorts of doubt or frustration or a sense of hopelessness. Like, what are we supposed to be doing in this moment? See, you see, like when you're engaged in something and you sense that there's something else going on, but you don't really know, it, it can have some negative effects. And that's true of our passage today. There is more that going on than what meets the eye. You see, this is not just a story about pigs drowning. This is not a story about the, de- the, the collapsing, pulled pork, toasted, coleslaw, Sami industry of the Decapolis region. It's not about a loss of economy and, no, we can't have bacon with our breakfast anymore because there's no more pigs. No. There is some real strong spiritual realities that are breaking and bursting forth on the Scriptures and for these people, some spiritual realities that are being laid bare for all of us to see to help us make sense of the reality in which we are living. See, if we don't pause and understand these spiritual realities this morning, you too might be left in your spiritual journey a little bit confused, maybe disillusioned with God, frustrated with who He is and what He claims to be. You might even feel a little bit vulnerable and afraid because you simply don't understand and comprehend or grasp the world that we live in and what's going on. See, the story, if we don't see that, our realities of our lives won't make sense. The realities of our lives won't make sense because this passage, in fact, is giving us a very real and true account of reality. This passage is actually revealing for us the reality of what is going on in the world and in our lives and what we experience on a daily basis. So here's the big idea. I want to give us the the answer up front. The big idea from this passage is simply this, is that there is a spiritual battle that is present in the world and in our lives, and none of us are exempt from it. There is a spiritual battle at play in the world in our lives and around us, inside us and outside of us and above us, and none of us are exempt from that spiritual battle. And two points. The first one is, there is evil in the world that is under the control of Satan and his demons that's intent on destroying everything. There is evil in the world under the demonic control of Satan and his demons that are intent on destroying everything. Second point, at the same time, there's a liberating, victorious power that has entered into the world that is binding and is ultimately destroying that evil power. Those are the two things that we want to highlight today to help us make sense of our reality. There is evil in the world under the demonic control of Satan and his demons intent on destroying everything. But at the same time, there's a liberating power that has entered in that is binding and will bind and destroy that evil power. So shall we make sense of reality? Let's have a look at the passage and have our eyes enlightened by the grace of God. Firstly, the evil in the world. We see the presence of evil. You cannot come away from reading this passage and not conclude that there is evil in the world. 
Verse 2, it says, immediately when Jesus leaves the boat, what happens? It says, a man with an evil spirit comes running to Jesus. It's real and it's present in this man's life. Not only are we told that he has an evil spirit, the next few verses unpack for us his reality of what his life has been like. It says that he's been bound. It says he's been cast out. It says he is tormented and he suffers. You have to read the first five verses and conclude it's showing us that evil is present. You just have to look at the interaction between Jesus and the demons and their fate and the pigs and their fate. Demonic evil is real. That's what it's telling us in the opening verses. And it's present in the world and none of us are exempt from its influence. Not humanity in the man and not creation in the pigs. Everything is influenced and under this demonic evil control. Now, I know this raises a lot of questions. And right now you might have a multitude of questions about demons, about their presence, about their purpose, about their power. Where do they come from? How do you get possessed? Can Christians be possessed? What power influence that they can have in my life? What am I supposed to do? Now, today, I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions. Uh, simply, we don't have time. And also, the passage doesn't directly answer them. The rest of the Bible does. So I would love to engage. Our leaders would engage with you on some of those questions. You can come chat to us afterwards. We will touch on some of them as I go through. Or you can email us, admin at parkerschurch.coza. And I'm being serious. These are, these are real and valid questions that we can compile all your questions, we can answer them, we can put out a document, we can meet for you coffee, and we'd love to engage with you on them. They're real. You see, that's part of the journey, is coming to the realization that there is evil present in the world, and it is at work. But I can't answer them all. And we want to focus on three things. It's the presence, the power, and the purpose of evil. That's what the passage shows us. And we are laying a framework to help you make sense of reality. That's, remember, that's where we started, is... We want to lay a framework of understanding to assist you to make sense to live in a world that has evil and brokenness in it. And that, would, that framework, when you understand it, hopefully today, it's going to start to lead you into a life of fullness and abundance and of joy and of hope and security and assurance that you can live now with this great assurance and liberate you, hopefully, into more wholeness and abundance and completeness of life. So, but it starts from this passage with a framework that there is evil, and we need to comprehend that. Not only is the presence of evil, but we also see the power of evil. Verses 3 to 4. It says, no one could bind him anymore. No one. That means no one could bind him, not even with a chain. Verse 4, no one was strong enough to subdue him. It's very clear, it's very simple, that there is, this evil is powerful, and that no one has any power to overcome and subdue this demonic evil spirit. No one. Nothing can control or overcome or overthrow or subdue this evil. The name of the spirit is Legion. Now, Legion, I think, is approximately, they say, three to 5,000 soldiers. The point of the name is to demonstrate for you its power. It was strong. No one can overthrow. No one can overcome. No one subdue. Not the man himself, not the people of the town, it says, not the chains on his hands, and not the leg irons on his feet. 
nothing, nothing can constrain the power and the influence of this evil spirit. And what do we conclude? Evil is present and it's powerful at work. And we cannot, in and of ourselves, overcome and overthrow and subdue this evil spirit. I can't. You can't. In and of yourself, liberate yourself from the bondage, the power and the control of demonic evil and sin in the world. That's what it's showing us. It's so powerful that we are, in a sense... If we stop here and we look at this, we are like that man, in bondage, hopeless, powerless, unable to get ourselves out of the context and the situation and the world in which we find ourselves. No one. No one can overthrow. And then we see evil's purpose. Verse 5. It says, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills... He would cry out, and he would cut himself with stones. Just think about that for a moment, the the absolute torment of this man's life. And if you go read the other accounts in Matthew and Luke, it says this has gone on for years. For years he hadn't slept. Imagine not sleeping for years. There is no peace. There's just continual torment, anxiety. He's going crazy, there's anguish, there's pain. He could be heard screaming. Imagine trying to sleep at night and you can hear someone screaming. They could hear him in the hills screaming. His life is anguish. So bad that he's cutting himself either to end his life or either just to relieve the pain and that cutting is even just even more at peace than it would be the torment that he's feeling. Evil in its intention, demonic evil in the world, is destructive. Sin is destructive. Sin, the Bible says, is death. Its ultimate aim is to completely destroy. And we see that in the story. What happens to the pigs? Immediately, the demons do what? They kill them. Destroy them. The intent of Satan and his demons is to destroy all of creation. They are there to destroy the image of God that we carry in us as humanity. The intent is to take you and turn you away from God, and ultimately their purpose is to destroy every created thing. And that's the first step this morning in making sense of reality. It's coming to an understanding that there is a spiritual battle in the world that none of us are exempt from. It's present, it's powerful, and it's intent on destroying you and turning you away from God and every created thing. So let me help us understand a little bit what that might look like. What that might look like in our lives and in, in the world. See, demons will try and blind you from the truth of the gospel. A demonic force of demons and Satan are going to try and blind you from the truth of Jesus. They're going to try and keep you in bondage to things that would hinder you, one, from coming to God, that would hinder you, two, in flourishing in your spiritual journey, in experiencing the joy of life that God has promised you, and three, to hinder you in your involvement in the advancement of the kingdom of God 
in the mission of God to proclaim the good news of God to the world. So demons are going to try and turn you and blind you from those truths so that you can't even come to God. If you do, they will try and oppress you to try and thwart your flourishing, and they're going to try and stop the advancement of the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And they will use things like temptation. They will use doubt, deception. You see, it's not just the big pigs running into the lake every time. It's not the legion of demons. It's these simple things that are more subversive. Doubt, deception, lies, guilt, fear, confusion. It might even mean direct sickness and health that you get afflicted to at times or seasons. It might be envy or pride that breaks down relationships and friendships and families to get in, to thwart your life and your spiritual growth. It could be slander. Any means possible to hinder coming to God, flourishing in God, and seeing the advancement of the kingdom of God. Any destructive activity that it'll be attempted to use to get a stronghold in you and to sap you of your experience and your joy and your love for God. So it could look like this. For some, it might be a persistent sin. That in our sinfulness, that we're sinful, we have to take accountability for our actions. We can't just outsource it, well, there's evil now, I'm not responsible. The Bible's very clear that we are sinful and we are responsible. But in our persistent sin, demonic and demons and Satan can use and intensify that sin that is persistent in your life to gain a stronghold to put you into slavery and bondage. And magnify the influence and the effect of that sin, because sin is destructive, right? It can destroy you, it can break friendship, relationships, families, into your work environment. Whatever it does, a persistent sin that is not good for you physically or spiritually, mentally or socially, whatever that is, that, that provides opportunity for demons to gain a foothold and a control in your life. It might be simply through temptation that in our own sinfulness, the, James says in the Bible, uh, resist and the devil will flee. But we don't resist and we're tempted. And in our sinfulness, we sin. And again, opportunity to magnify and intensify the consequences of sin that are destructive in our lives. Or it might be a third thing, that something has happened to you, that you have experienced good things or bad things, or things that you have done or been involved in. And that is then used the way you process that, the way you've experienced that, deception, lies, manipulation, that could thwart the way you see God. Where was God in that moment? Is God who he says he is? Is he really that good? Is he a God of love? Is he in control? Where is the sovereign authoritative power of God in the world if that happened? Can you see? There's demonic influence and control through deception and lies to process the way that you've experienced things or things that you've done. And that can have a foothold and make it, I don't know, in marriage, like difficult to have intimacy, difficult to love your wife and your kids and your family the way you should. It can manifest itself in a multiple sets of different ways, and we don't even realize what's going on. We have to make sense of reality. Now, the text gives us some examples in this man's life of this self-hate, self-loathing, could be self-esteem. You know, we could go down, there's anguish or anxiety, but I thought I'd maybe share some of my own story to make it real for us, of my experience of this in my own life. 
<coughs> Excuse me, it's just cold. See, when I became a Christian, it's about 20-odd years ago now, um, I really struggled. Uh, it, it wasn't easy, particularly that first year. Um, and there was some strongholds in my life and some demonic attack on me in those early days and that first year to try and get me to turn back and left me um, really struggling. And I would say two things. I, in my early Christian walk, had a, 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 in my life, I think, I'd carried with me a sense of disentitlement. And some might say a spirit of disentitlement, if that's the way you're inclined and your background, but a, a, a disentitlement in my life. And alongside of that, I also carried with me in that season a deep sense of loss. As I became a Christian, I just had this deep sense of loss pervading over me. And, uh, and these things had grown in me over time because of things that had happened to me before I'd become a Christian, things that had happened had, had drastically influenced the way I perceived things and things that I'd done for a long period of time I'd been involved in and created an identity of the way I saw myself. Um, and they had a foothold, and they wouldn't let me go. And they were hindering not just my spiritual journey, they were hindering me and my experience and joy in life and my success in life, just in general. But in particular, as I started out on my Christian journey, um, I felt and really struggled to the degree that that first year of, of becoming a Christian, when God had saved me, I really struggled with depression. I, I felt this low-level sense of depression, like, whew, you know, like, this isn't fun. And uh, it took me a long time to understand these realities. You can imagine living with a sense of loss. Think about living with a sense of loss. Like, for a long time, I felt that God, and, and this carried on, actually, the sense of loss carried on, for a lot longer into my spiritual journey until, by the grace of God, he revealed to me very clearly um, through his scriptures one day that I count all as loss to gain. And I had been seeing it the opposite way around for so long that, that God was holding out on me. You know, I had this, that God had shortchanged me. See, I, I'd given up everything. And when God had saved me, there had been quite a quick and radical transformation in my life out of my whole social circle just disappeared. I mean, I was living in the digs with a bunch of my roads mates. That thing just went south quickly. I mean, imagine trying to process a Friday evening in the digs with five guys. It just, I soon found myself moving out. It just, they, and then they were like, they used to phone me and taunt me. Where's the old Quentin? Like, bring him back. We miss him. You know, like, I really, my whole social life, my identity, my career changed, the things that I did. And I, I, I lived with a sense of, of wanting to always turn back. You know, that's demonic. Like, he wants to turn you away from God. And I carried with me this need to always go back. That was fun. This is not fun. This is not fun. And it was oppressive. And I became very depressed. Uh, the sense of disentitlement, uh, due to my background and, and what I went through, I always felt that I wasn't welcome. I always felt that I found myself in environments that I was hitting above my weight and I was a fake, and I carried with me some guilt and shame that if people knew, and that had been some of the things that I'd done, and now I was dealing with my guilt and shame, but just, it, I would always sabotage myself in my workplace or my performance or whatever, because I, I had a sense of disentitlement. And this came to a head, uh, I went on a spiritual retreat, and I was in a, uh, we did like this prayer journey, 
and they put up all these different stations. And they were very creative. There were these interactive stations that you could work your way through, and it would stimulate your prayer time and your experiencing of God and engaging with Him. And I came to this one station, and it was just a door in a room. And uh, there's no, there was no explanation of what it was. So I opened the door and went inside, shut the door behind me, and in front of me was this massive table. And it was just full of the finest of food. I mean, these guys must have spent a fortune. I was like, what the heck? I'm in a prayer retreat in a room full of food. I mean, they had sushi on the one end, down to chocolate and sweets and ice cream and fruit. I mean, they had everything. And I, I sat down on the chair and I remember like, I don't know, I must have been in that room half an hour. I just sat there. I just sat there. And I walked out. Is it strange? And I was processing this with someone afterwards to help me work through that. And they said, and it turns out I was the only person who didn't make a pig of himself and eat. A sense of disentitlement and of loss. Here I was. That's the kingdom of God right in front of me. The fullness of God's blessing. The invite is come eat. Come, come eat. I have all the riches of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms are mine. I'm now a son of God. I've been seated at the right hand of God. I've been accepted. I've been adopted. I'm welcomed. There is my seat at the table to enter into the kingdom of God and to live and eat with abundance to receive the fullness of God to enjoy it, to be nourished by it. And there I was. Didn't touch a thing. I'm not welcome here. I can't sit at this table. And there I'm thinking that I have nothing. I want to go back in front of me. I've got all these riches. What have I got outside? We had some dingy camp in the middle of nowhere drinking Rick coffee. But like, I could have... But no, I'm going outside to get a, a rusk. Can you see? For those doubters, it's real. It's real. And that started a journey, a journey to fullness, a journey of wholeness and of joy and purpose. I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't sit at that table. And that's the reality. There is evil in the world, and it's at work to destroy you to steal from you, to cheat and destroy. But that's not all there is. Remember the second point? There is a victorious, liberating power that has entered into the world that is constraining and ultimately destroying all of this evil. And it's come to replace the kingdom of this world. It's come to replace the existing authorities, principalities and powers, Satan and his demons, and the deathly control that it has, it's come to demolish them and replace them with a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, with the king himself who's entered in. And we need to grasp that reality because that is the true reality in which you and I can now live in this world. And we see the presence of the kingdom of God. Verse 7, God has now come in the flesh. Jesus is standing there. And the demons know this. Verse 7, it says, 
what do you want with me? And notice what they say. Jesus, son of the most high God. They, they know that this is God and he is present now. And they know what he has come to do. He has come to establish his kingdom on earth. The power, the influence, the life, the joy, the liberating freedom has now come. And he is breaking the, the control and the power of this world and replacing it with a new king and a new kingdom. That's what Jesus says he comes to do. If you remember right at the, book, at the beginning of the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus starts his mission, what does he say? The time has come. Mark chapter 5, this is that time. The kingdom of God is here. Look what Jesus says, chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of, it's present. God has now come. He says, repent, believe, for this is good news. Enter into the kingdom. No longer do you have to live in the kingdom of this world, this kingdom of darkness. He says you can now enter into the kingdom of light. With a new king, God in the flesh is present. The kingdom of God is here. And that's the, the main point of chapter, the first five chapters we've done in this series, is Jesus is demonstrating and manifesting the presence of the kingdom of God through his teaching and his miracles that is showing a new authority, a new power, that has come to destroy and replace and instill a kingdom. That's the reality of the book of Mark. And no longer, no longer are we left without hope. No longer are we left in bondage with nowhere to go, with no help, overpowered, unable to overthrow. That is not, there is a new authority. There is a new power. A liberating power is now present. God in the flesh has established and is continuing to establish his kingdom. And then we see its power. This man was under the control of the demonic influence, this legion. But what happens when Jesus arrives? The demonic power immediately is rendered useless. Not only is it rendered useless, it becomes subservient. They actually submit to, obey, and listen to Jesus. Not only do they have no power, they're little puppy dogs now, listening and being controlled by their true master. Verse 7. Here they are. It's crazy to think. They're saying to God, swear to God. They're saying, take an oath. Jesus, swear to God that you're not going to torture us. You're not going to torment us. They know the outcome. They know they've finished. The demons know the result. That their time is up. Their power is gone. And they're just begging for mercy. Don't torture us. And you get a deeper insight if you look at the corresponding accounts. In, uh, but all the Gospels have this, this story in them. So if you look at Mark chapter eight, oh, sorry, Luke chapter 8.31, it says they begged him, the demons, repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. The abyss is what we see in Revelation. It's this lake of fire where it says Satan and his demons will be chained and thrown in, where they will be destroyed and rendered powerless. They know what's coming. Please don't throw us into the abyss. The authority. Matthew says in chapter 8, 29, he says, They shouted, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They know what's happening, and they say, well, hang on, you've come a bit early. Like, don't do this now, Jesus. Like, we know we're going to the abyss. What it's showing us is, is that they have no authority. Now it's gone. 
the end has been decided. There is a recognition of Jesus and who he is and his identity and his ultimate sovereign power, and it's here now. And they're begging him, don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us there before our time. And they say, rather, send us into the pigs. And then Jesus does something. Verse 15 is so profound. Verse 13, it says he gave them permission. Permission. Think about that for a moment. What does permission mean in this? Everything. Everything submits to Jesus. You have to have his permission. Their authority is gone. Their power is gone. Their influence is gone in Jesus Christ. They need permission. He is the ultimate authority and power of everything. What does the Bible tell us? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And here it is. Here it is. Here's the truth of that passage for you. Here are the demons groveling in the dirt. Remember, knees bowed. And what are they doing? They're proclaiming, Lord, you are Jesus. You are God. There it is. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. And here are the demons groveling in the dirt. Knees bowed, confessing that you are Lord. The kingdom of God will advance and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And that is the reality that you and I can now live in with a newfound freedom to make sense of this crazy world. Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He says, talking about Jesus, this is what Paul says, having disarmed the powers and authorities. There it is. He's disarmed them. He made a public spectacle of them. That's wonderful. Like he's just embarrassed them. Triumphing over them in the cross. The cross was a decisive moment. If you doubt this, that's what the cross is doing. That Satan and his demons, death and sin has been destroyed and he has been raised to new life. That we now have an eternal life. We have an abundant and a fullness of life that can be now and forever. The presence of God and the kingdom of God and this power of absolute authority that is ours to be lived and experienced. And this is its purpose. Look at the purpose. This is wonderful. The purpose of this kingdom isn't death and destruction. He says, when the townsfolk come out to, to investigate what's happened to their pigs, verse 15, what do they find? They don't find any pigs. They find the man sitting at the feet of Jesus, and it says he was dressed or fully clothed in his right mind. There's a complete and utter turnaround in this man's life. He's been tormented. He's been in bondage to this destructive power. He's been utterly hopeless. He's been naked. He's been cast out living in a cemetery. And he's been cutting himself. And what do we see now? That's the intent of Satan. And what do we see now? In the kingdom of God, we have a man. We have a man who's no longer tormented, but he's at peace and in right mind. We have a man who's no longer in bondage, but he's been set free. We have a man who's no longer naked and exposed and utterly hopeless, but he's fully clothed in the love of God. We have a man who's no longer cast out without hope and rejected, but we have a man who's been brought in, loved and accepted at the feet of Jesus. We have a man who's with Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, under the protection of Jesus, 
in the life-giving power and authority of Jesus that has brought him alive. And where is he? He's sitting there fully clothed. And the Bible says Jesus comes to robe you, clothe you in robes of righteousness. Robes of righteousness. And that's the intent and the purpose of God in coming in Jesus and establishing his kingdom. He comes to save. He comes to set free. He comes to give life. He comes to heal. He comes to restore. He comes to make new. And he comes to clothe you. The man was naked, it says. Think of the imagery of nakedness. You exposed and hopeless and lost. But now God has come and he has clothed you. Colossians chapter 1 helps us. One of my favorite verses, verse 12. It says, the Father, that's Jesus, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. With my sense of disentitlement and loss, this was such a powerful imagery that I've been qualified. I'm good enough. God has made me new. He's welcomed me in. I'm now qualified by the highest qualifier. No other qualification can compare. And he has brought me into an inheritance At the feet of Jesus, this clothing, this inheritance, these riches, this table of the kingdom is in form. I can gorge myself. I've been qualified, it says, and I've been brought in to an inheritance of saints in the kingdom of light out of this kingdom of darkness. For he has rescued you out of this dominion, it says, of darkness, and he has brought you into the kingdom of his son, Jesus, whom he loves. That's this passage in Colossians. That's what's going on. And where we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And it's wonderful. It's beautiful. That's the presence, the power, and the purpose of the kingdom of God. Don't you want to know the freedom, the life, the forgiveness, the healing, and the abundance of the kingdom of God in person of Jesus? I've run out of time. But we're going to go into communion. But I think... I'm not going to chop this out. I'll still say this. How do we respond? How do we respond? What's the application? Well, I think there's three ways. And maybe I'll just wrap this into communion. We're going to go into communion so the guys can get ready. Um, communion is that cr- the moment of the cross, isn't it? Like it's a graphic representation of that God goes in on our behalf and he, he takes the intent the death, the sin, the destruction of Satan, and he destroys it. He absorbs that punishment, and then he destroys the power, and then we get raised to new life. And this is a moment to help us to enter in and receive, repent and believe, and enter into the kingdom of God. So this morning, you you might not be a Christian. You might have doubts about who Jesus is, but the grace of God and the revelation of God has come to you this morning to help you make sense of the world in which you live. And I would encourage you, like this man, what does he do? It says he, when he sees Jesus, he, he runs. He realizes that's his only hope. He cannot overcome the realities in which he lives unless he comes to Jesus. And I'd invite you this morning, Jesus is getting out the boat. Why don't you run down the hill to Jesus? And in communion, that's this, the juice and the bread are representations of his atoning sacrifice for you. That he takes your punishment. He takes your destiny of death and separation from God upon himself. He destroys that authority and that power to forgive you, make you new, set you free, and raise you to new life as a citizen in his kingdom. You want to receive that? As we go through communion, maybe you could pray that. You can ask someone to pray it with you. 
You can come and speak to someone afterwards. And if you're a Christian, many of us here are Christians probably. As you heard my own story, I would encourage you that the life of a Christian is to, like this man, be found at the feet of Jesus. Continually come back to the feet of Jesus. See, we have this habit of unrobing ourselves and walking around naked. And I think for many of us, our spiritual journey has been characterized by nakedness. We feel exposed, utterly helpless, disentitled, great sense of loss, for whatever reason. And when you come to the feet of Jesus, he robes you in his righteousness and his love again. And we need, some of you need to be healed this morning. It could be a physical healing that you've been oppressed through sickness, but it could be doubt, it could be fear, it could be guilt, it could be shame. Whatever it is, I don't know. But there is grace this morning at the feet of Jesus in this moment of communion that God would shine his light on that sin, on that place, whatever that might be, he wants to make you whole. We all know that verse, eh? he comes to kill, cheat, and destroy, but he comes to give us life in abundance. And many of us are limping through life naked, even though we are sitting looking at the table in front of us. We are not even taking part. The invite to you, if you're a Christian today, is find your seat at the table again. Ask God to, to speak to you. Repent and believe in communion. Receive or just ask for his healing or his power. And then lastly, I would say mission. At the end of this passage, there's mission. See, Jesus comes, God comes in the flesh on a mission to establish his kingdom, and he brings you and me into the kingdom. He, Colossians rescues out of, transfers us into the kingdom of light under this new king on a mission to advance the influence and the invite to enter into his kingdom. He says to the man, now go. Go home to your family and friends and tell them of what Jesus has done and of his great mercy. And every single one of us should have a story to tell of what God has done. And he might be doing it this morning of his mercy. That we would become a community as a church of individuals and corporately that proclaim and demonstrate the presence of the kingdom of God. That people would be added in and people would be liberated and healed. If that's you, why you want to pray for that during communion? that you would be commissioned and empowered with a newfound confidence in the authority of Jesus to demonstrate and proclaim the presence of God in the world. What a wonderful way to live. Absolutely free. Free of shame, guilt, fear, insecurity, whatever. Just go. That you're a child of God, you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God. You've been saved by God and you've been commissioned and purposed by God. And he wants to heal you and send you. So let's do that. The guys are going to sing. But let's take this time. Um, allow the elements. Let me pray for us.